Verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Mesopotamia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyria, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain from, by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that they, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The cr- crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and so the foundations of the prisons prison were shaken and immediately all the doors opened and everyone's bonds bounds were unfastened when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open he threw his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped but paul cried with a loud voice do not harm yourself for we are all here and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before paul and silas Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the words of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire family household that he had believed in God. Would you please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's holy word. Part of my purpose is to uh, prepare us for communion at the end of the service uh, today, but kindergarten and first grade, if, if you're there, you can uh, exit through the uh, rear door there. Have you ever felt stuck? <laughs> That's the title of today's sermon. Are you stuck? You feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. The passage obviously comes from Acts 16, which seems like a break from Jeremiah, but it isn't really a break. 
It's about the same sorts of things we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. I remember I spent a whole year of my life feeling that way, stuck. And I was in Japan. I was married to Shelly. It was a beautiful relationship. We were newly married, so it was particularly exciting. And we went to Japan, and I thought it was going to be a great adventure, as did Shelly. But we soon discovered that the city that we were in was very small. So small, in fact, that we were one of eight foreigners in, in Japan, in, in that city in Japan. And so when we walked down the road, they gawked and, oh, look at that, you're different, you look so weird. And they thought we were uh, celebrities, I don't know, American celebrities or something. And we spent a whole year trying to run away from people who would poke at us and pull our hair. And, and, uh, and our apartment was extremely small. I may have talked about that apartment before. Uh, it was maybe 700 square feet or less. It was, it was really small. And, and the office that I worked in, everything was it just, I was stuck in Japan and I couldn't figure out why. I went to church, and it was a church much like ours. had the same sort of music and same sort of Bible teaching, and I was so excited to, to go, and I rushed up to the pastor, who was a white American. He was a, he was a missionary, and he, 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 uh, he was preaching that. I rushed up to him, and I said, Hey, I'm so glad I found you. My name is David Heinrichs, and I played the guitar, and I led worship in, you know, in the college group back in, in the United States, and I'm so excited to be here in your church. I just want to serve. Just use me. And he said, You can come. But we'd rather not have you as a, as a leader in the church. But, but feel free to come. And I was crushed by that. I thought, why? And his, his, his model of ministry was, you know, was fine. It was just for the Japanese people. He didn't want it to seem like a white American church. He wanted it to seem like a Japanese church. And so I sort of just came. It wasn't really used. For a year of my life, I felt stuck. And then, Shelly and I decided to adopt from China. And all of a sudden, Japan started making a little more sense to me that perhaps I had been prepared for something that I would be able to experience with my Asian child, who I've now adopted. Now, that's one small example of being stuck in your life. I'm sure many of you feel stuck, if not everybody in here. Some of you probably looked at the title of the sermon and maybe just wrote a yes. Are you stuck? Yes, I'm stuck. I feel that way right now. Two weeks ago, Paul preached from Jeremiah 29, and and he talked about being stuck. Remember the four teenagers that were sent into Babylon, into what was called captivity? They were called exiles. They were stuck. Remember that? And the false prophets were saying, hey, don't worry about it. Just a couple of years, we'll be back in Jerusalem. And God's saying, no, you're stuck. (laughs) Seventy years, you know, get married, build houses, you're stuck. And then Paul made the point, no, wait. You're not stuck. Because when he got to verse 4, he said this. The Lord of hosts saying to Israel, to the exiles, and here's the word, whom I sent to Babylon. You're not stuck. He said you're sent. You're not a captive. Remember the word Paul used? You're a missionary. Now I began to think about that. I thought, okay, I've had a Japanese experience. I was stuck. I've been stuck in other parts of my life. So I'm not stuck. I'm sent. I'm not a captive. I'm a missionary. But the very words we're using says that there's a purpose. I am sent, not just sent. I'm sent for a purpose. 
I'm not just a missionary. The very word missionary has in it the word mission. I'm on a mission. And so the question before the house today is, what is that mission? Are you stuck? What are you being sent for? What is the mission for you? Well, we can get that mission, if you would, from Matthew 28. Great commission. I send you into all the nations, baptizing those, making disciples, baptizing those in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. Okay, I've got a mission now. That, that's clear. A mission. Well, let me read you a, a passage that blessed me this last week. It's from the Bible. We'll tell you where. And I want you to try to figure out with your biblical minds who wrote this and where you think it might be. Let me read this passage to you. I lifted my eyes to heaven and blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Sounds like David, right? Maybe one of the other writers of the Psalms. Maybe Moses wrote that. It was a song of Moses, maybe. No, it was neither of those. And you probably know. I hope you do. It was a Gentile king. Not a part of the nation of Israel. It was the very king that came into Jerusalem and took the 10,000 out as captives. King Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote those words that I just read. And in that message, in that little passage that you heard Nebuchadnezzar write, you see the purpose that you were sent. Don't you? Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar says earlier in Daniel chapter 3, he says, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who rescues like he does. See, Nebuchadnezzar did not say that when he first stepped foot into, into Jerusalem. He never said those words when he first met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Daniel. But he did after these four teenagers were sent to him. So our purpose, our goal, is to glorify God by getting others to glorify God. We want to glorify God in such a way that others glorify God. And that's where our passage this morning comes in. I'm not in exile. You're, You're not in exile. We're not Moses. Moses was sent, right? Abraham was sent. Jonah was sent. Esther was sent. And it's about that time you start realizing, wait a second, take a step back. Look at the whole Bible. It's everywhere. All over the Bible. People are sent to get other people to worship and glorify God. But I'm not the Old Testament people. I'm not an exile in Babylon. In fact, Christ has died and He rose from the dead. And His Holy Spirit is living in me. Right here. Right here in me. And so there's some big differences between those who lived in the Old Testament and those who live right now. You, sitting here in this gym right now. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to get other people to worship or glorify God? How can you say the right thing? Where do you go? And more importantly, who do you say it to? 
And immediately when I asked myself that question, Acts 16 came to my mind. Acts 16, one of my most favorite passages of the Bible. It's probably more responsible for the way that I do ministry here at Christ Community Church than any other passage in the Bible. Acts chapter 16. It is one of the greatest turning points in the early church. And you might be thinking, well, okay, I don't really see that. I see, you know, three people were converted. That's great. Certainly, you know, a demon was cast out. You know, but we've seen that before. Christ did that. Other apostles did that. Oh, yeah, the earthquake in the jail. That was something. That was amazing. But, you know, Peter was rescued from prison, too. So why is this passage so important? It makes an immense impression on the Apostle Paul. And Luke records for us here in this passage some very interesting details. You can't read Saul or Acts 16 and come away feeling like you understand everything that just happened. There's some major questions in this passage that kind of trip you up. It makes you kind of think, why did he do that? Or why didn't he do that? And when you're tripped up like that, a good student of the Bible is going to look carefully at the, at the text and the context to figure out what's really the message for me today. And so that's what we're going to do today. So let's look at it. We've got three people. We've got Lydia, we've got the slave girl, and we've got the jailer. There's my sermon, three points right there. So if you're taking notes, first we're going to look at Lydia. What did Paul learn? Then the slave girl. What did Paul learn there? And then the jailer. And what did Paul learn there? So let's, let's look at Lydia. What do we know about Lydia? She was rich. We, we, we know that. Uh, Lydia was a dealer in purple cloths, which is very rare, expensive stuff. Uh, apparently they got the dye I was reading from some shell. It was painstaking to get, and, and it was very expensive. So she rubbed shoulders with royalty. Uh, she was a woman. I mentioned that. She was religious. She was called a worshiper of God. But she was a Gentile. So she wasn't a Jew. She was a, a Gentile worshiper of God. So in some ways... You know, she, uh, she worshiped God in some unique way there. She was seeking after God. But let's read it. Verse 12. You'll look down at verse 12. It says, From there we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonian Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. The NIV says several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So, so Paul, for several days, and Silas, they're preparing to preach. Let me ask you a question. What's in Paul's mind right here? Verse 12 and 13 of Acts 16. Well, it's hard to know what's in anyone's mind. But I think we can get a pretty clear picture, in this case, about what's in Paul's mind. Let me remind you what happened on the first missionary journey. This is the second, obviously, second missionary journey. But the first missionary journey is what's kind of roaming around in Paul's head. Okay? Acts 13, Paul encountered this guy named Sergio Paulus. He's a proconsul. He's a very powerful man. And he has this aide who's bar Jesus, and he's a, a sorcerer, if you will. And this sorcerer is opposing Paul in front of this very powerful proconsul. Sergius Paulus. Paul teaches brilliantly, has the attention of the proconsul, and then Paul silences this sorcerer by making him blind. And the proconsul is impressed. You and I both think 
because Paul can make someone blind. But the text says, if you go back to Acts 16, he's impressed with Paul's teaching. Later on, he goes to Pisidian Antioch. Paul's feeling pretty good about it. I think I would feel pretty good about myself. I'd be, yeah. And then he says this, and in a Sean Connery way, men and brothers, let me reason with you. He says it, he says it just like that. I know this for a fact. I hear Paul say that in my mind. Men and brothers, let me reason with you. He's so powerful a speaker in Pisidian Antioch that many people come, many powerful people, men come to know the Lord. In Acts 14, he goes to Iconian. The same things happen in Iconian. Men and brothers, let me reason with you. Stands up in the synagogue, which is a great building for worshiping God. So, what's... What's he doing here? In the first missionary journey, he meets important men, men and brothers, let me reason with you. He reasons with them, teaches them, and they convert. They build a church together. Now, there's some things going on besides that, but that's kind of what's in Paul's mind. If it happened that way, the first missionary journey, there's no reason to think it won't the second missionary journey. Remember, beginning of Acts 16, if you've read that, God says, don't go to Asia, and sends a vision. Remember the vision at night? It's this Macedonian man that nobody really knows. Maybe it was Luke. Maybe it was someone else, the jailer. I don't know. But it's a Macedonian man. And he's pleading with Paul, please come help us. Paul, okay, I'm going to Macedonia. And that's where Philippi is in Macedonia. So we can know what's in Paul's mind, right? He's looking for the man of Macedonia. What does he find instead? doesn't find a synagogue. You only need ten Jewish men to set up a synagogue. Ten. (laughs) There's not ten Jewish men in Philippi. So, there's no synagogue. What else does he meet? Just a rumor. Maybe some people praying. Thirteen. Look down with me at thirteen. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Now, Paul's not against women, but he's looking for the men and the brothers to reason together. And he he doesn't see a synagogue. He doesn't see men and brothers. He's a little thrown off by this, I think. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You should be stuck there. You should think, what? She prevailed upon us. The NIV, she persuaded us. Paul, why do you need persuading? A free house? Hospitality? What's wrong with that? I mean, why are you needing her to persuade you? Why is Lydia having to stand up and say, if you've judged me faithful, like this, hello, come to my house. Well, I think the answer could be that Paul was looking for a Macedonian man. (laughs) Not necessarily a Macedonian woman. And a headstrong woman at that. Independently wealthy. She prevailed upon us, meaning she was aggressive. She ran her own own business. says when she was baptized, her household was baptized. Okay, we have a pretty independent woman here. No mention of her husband. I, I can only guess what he was up to, if he even existed. But notice what she she didn't want to just have Paul and Silas come over for lunch. I mean, that's not the kind of hospitality we're talking about here. And I know this for a certain fact. 
she was asking Paul for her house to be the headquarters of the Philippian church. She wanted everybody in the whole church to come over to her house and let my house be the base of operations for your church. And Paul just didn't see her as useful for that reason. Kind of looked over her head a little bit. Look at verse 40. It says, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, at the end of this passage, after they came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. So Paul gave in. You see, he he felt stuck here at this moment. I'm stuck in Philippi. No synagogue, by the river, open air, prayer meeting with a bunch of women. Not the greatest thing. When, when Paul writes 1 Timothy, he writes some harsh words for women. We want women to be modestly dressed, not adorned. He says, don't braid your hair, put on expensive gold earrings. Act like you should, women, modestly, humbly, as one who does profess the Lord. The kind of women Paul ran into a lot of times, especially in Corinth and other places in Ephesus, were these kind of women. And so he wrote these kind of words. I'm sure if he came to Christ Community Church, he would have a whole different perspective on womanhood. But but here in the Bible, at least, the women he was encountering were like this, like Lydia, rich. So he missed it. He was stuck. God, you're, you're sticking me here with a woman. And then it happens. He opens his eyes. And he sees, oh, it's like God took his hands on his head and kind of forced his head to look right there. That's what I want for you, a woman named Lydia. Well, thankfully, Paul gets it. He understands. He's, he's no longer stuck. He's sent to Lydia. This church becomes one of the greatest examples of generous giving. Remember 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8 talks about the Macedonian churches, and how extreme affliction, severe affliction, led to extreme poverty. Lydia probably lost her job or her wealth, at least. And the extreme poverty there, you know what it led to? In the Philippian church, it was joy and abundant giving and generosity. And Paul is saying, Corinth, do you see the Philippian church here? Do you see Lydia's house? That's the model. So Paul really flips here. He really flips here. He knows he was sent to Lydia. And then next, we see a slave girl. What do we know about the slave girl? Well, she's a slave and she's a girl. (laughs) Those two things right there show us she's the lowest among the low. She's not a woman like Lydia. She's lower than that. She's a slave girl. She's enslaved in two ways. Don't miss the double enslavement here. The double enslavement. The demons are enslaving her and the humans are enslaving her. And Paul's walking around trying to preach, trying to find some men and brothers, maybe in reason with them, I don't know, something, but trying to find a church here. And this girl keeps popping up. Now she says something that's true, which should make you scratch your head. Okay, so she says, here's some bond servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation. The, the Greek actually says a way of salvation, not the way. A lot of, a lot of scholars I've read that, that look at this say, you know, I think what's going on here is that Satan's trying to subvertly ally himself with the Christian church and thereby confuse everybody. So people really think the gospel is coming from the demon and this girl allied with Paul. And so they're all sort of one team. And Paul comes into the mix, recognizes that 
and immediately cast the demon out. But here's a few problems with that. And there's many scholars who disagree with that perspective. Why did he wait so long? The NIV says several days. ESV says some days. So it's not just one. She keeps popping up. She keeps coming and saying these things. And Paul turns to her. What does your Bible say? What is the motivation for him to cast this demon out? Annoyed. You're annoying me and my cause. God, I'm stuck with a slave girl who won't get out of my way. And God, on the fourth day, says, that's not out of the way. That is the way. This girl is the way. Look at her. The slave girl. The demon is cast out by the power of Jesus. And immediately he encounters the men of Philippi. The powerhouses of Philippi. He goes before the magistrates. They rule against him. Obviously because it's a money issue. has nothing to do with the gospel. They're not upset that Christ died for their sins. They're upset that they lost their money. Paul gets beaten along with Silas. They get thrown into prison. But listen to what the magistrates say to the jailer. And when, this is verse 23, when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. The jailer says, oh, not just a normal prisoner. I got it. What does the jailer do? Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we've got an inner room with walls around it, right? And, and they're sitting down and they've got their feet in these stocks and they're separated and they're kind of painful. Callously, in a very secular way, uninvolved way, the Roman jailer does this deed. Okay, I've got it. Inner, inner prison. Okay, now from this we know the magistrates have fear. They fear Paul and Silas. In their minds, the most powerful men in Philippi are thinking, there's something powerful going on with Paul and Silas. And I respect that, and I fear that. And I'm afraid of that. I need, I need to lock him up extra secure. And so this is a very real example of, of Paul feeling stuck and realizing he's sent. Sent to the slave girl. And look, in jail, there's hope. Paul gets it. He gets it. He understands. I'm not stuck in prison. What does Paul understand in prison? I want to be clear about this. It's not just to suffer generally for God. Because a lot of times when we suffer, we suffer like that. I'm suffering somehow for God. And I don't know the specific detail. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm supposed to do or say. But somehow I'm suffering for God. And then praise be to God, glory, blessed be his name. Well, Paul has a very different kind of suffering here in the jail. His feet are in the stocks. At midnight, he's singing a song. I've always read this text that Paul and Silas are singing the song because they're encouraged by the sound of their own voice singing praise songs. Or they're remembering passages of the Bible, psalms that they're singing now. They need strength. They need courage. So they sing and they pray and they get the strength they need. But you know, all those words I just said are added words. They don't appear in the Bible. 
What appears in the Bible? They sang these songs and the prisoners listened. That's all we know. So at the very least, we know Paul is singing in such a way in the inner room through the walls so that other people can hear. I'm sent here, Paul says. I'm not stuck here. This is where the gospel is going to be preached, not in a synagogue with men and brothers and reasoning. No, my methods on missionary journey number one are very different on missionary journey two. I'm in a prison and I'm screaming out the praises of God. Now, what effect did that have on the prisoners? The prisoners were listening. That's all we know. What effect did that have? Now, this is where you get tricky. I'm not sure about this, but this is what I think. At least from what we know, at midnight, here comes the earthquake. Two things happen. The doors open and the, the bonds are unfastened. Not just on Paul, but on who? Everyone. Paul, Silas, and prisoner 1 through 40. Everybody's free. Nobody leaves. Nobody. Not one prisoner. Because when, when the jailer comes in, about to kill himself, and Paul says, wait, stop, no. We are all here. Now, you can't convince me, no matter how hard you try. It's just not there. That somehow Paul got up realized, I've got to stop this madness, run to the other prisoners and refasten them all so they wouldn't leave. He was beaten. So why didn't the other prisoners leave? See, this is the moment where you, you get stuck in Scripture and you're like, well, you've got to ask yourself that question. Here's what I think is, Paul, saying on purpose, the prisoners responded. It was the first sermon they'd ever heard. That doesn't say they became Christians, but they didn't leave. And the church grew because of this whole experience. And the jailer comes in, and the jailer's dumbfounded. Why aren't you gone? I was just about to kill myself. I thought you guys would escape. You know, I've felt stuck before. I was on the trip to North uh, Grifton, North Carolina, with the high school students. And there were 40, 40, 50 kids there. And I told the kids and the leaders, I said, everybody's got to pick a student. You know, we've got to pick a couple, maybe two or three. You know, and pick one or two and just kind of, that's your target. That's what God's leading you to. And just kind of let God form that relationship. So we all went out there. There's 15, I guess, of us and 45 of them. And we're just going out with, you know, okay, God's going to choose a couple kids for me. And, and, and through the interaction of basketball and, you know, all the other things we did and the backyard Bible club, you know, we all sort of got paired up. Everybody had somebody. And we were sharing the gospel with these people. And it worked like clockwork, except for me. I didn't have anybody, which is all right. I'm still looking. You know, God hasn't moved yet. Okay, I'm in. And so I keep going through the week, and this kid keeps coming. Edermon was his name. ACDC, spiked hair, 17 years old, didn't go to school, didn't have a family, lived with his second cousin's aunt or something. You know, he's, he's one of these transients. And he comes, and I think it was, I don't know, Grant or Matt, it's one of the testimonies that they were given. And he made this snide remark, and everybody laughed. And it was off, you know, way off. We had to bring the group back. And I, I looked over at the kids and said, who is that Airman guy? And, and my thought was, you know, he's kind of a, a weirdo, crazy. And they all said it. Yeah, he's crazy. He's kind of weird, you yeah. know. He, he was mentally disabled, for sure. He was. And I thought, well, my, my reaction here, I'm the leader of this group. We need order. 
as a teacher, you know, as a, okay, let's just go to Aramon and say, hey, you know, tomorrow don't, don't, don't come. This is for backyard Bible club for kids. We're going to color. You don't want to color. That was my motive here. And then I felt the hand of God here and here moving my head to Ermon saying, you're not stuck with him. You're sent to him. You're sent to him. Shared the gospel three times. I think he forgot the first two times. And, and by the third time, he turned to me. I was waiting for him to ask the question. He turned to me and said, what do I have to do to be saved? That's what the jailer said to Paul. What must I do? What do I have to do to be saved? Oh, well, let's, let's go over here. And we went under a tree and we prayed to receive Christ. And, and I spoke with him for another half an hour after that. We hung around and his face was filled with joy. And the next day that, that, we, that we came to that trailer park and saw Aramon again, he was again filled with joy. He's the first one to come up to me and, you know, try to hug me and awkwardly shake my hand. Or what do I do here because I really like you, you know. It was great, a great moment in the building of God's kingdom. And I would never have gotten it if God hadn't pushed my head in his direction just like he did for Paul in Acts 16. Just like he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel in Babylon. Just like he did for Jonah going to Nineveh or Esther going to the king and maybe being killed. And a hundred other examples. You're not stuck. You are sent for a very real purpose. And the jailer comes. Why aren't you gone? What must I do to be saved? And becomes a Christian. And then takes them in and heals their wounds, binds up their wounds, and, and is part of the church. I'm not sure if he was the pastor, if he quit his job as a jailer, I'm not sure. But God's kingdom grew because of that. Now our church, our situation, here's some applications for us. What do we do? Where do we go? What do we say? And more importantly, to whom... Do we say it? Notice here in, in the text we have three different people. Lydia. Lydia, a religious, educated, wealthy person. You know someone like that in your life? You know what they need? What did Paul give them? Teaching. He sat by the river, opened up his Old Testament. This is Christ. There's Christ again. You see that? This is Christ here. You see that? And Lydia was converted. Slave girl didn't need that. Look, the slave girl was oppressed. Doubly oppressed. She was the lowest of the low. She didn't want teaching. She didn't need it. She didn't have time for it. She was abused and exploited. What did she need? What did Paul give her? Freedom from oppression. The jailer. Didn't need teaching. Didn't need freedom from oppression. He was a jailer. An ex-Roman soldier. Thank you very much. I'm not seeking God. I'm on my own way here. You know someone like that? A strong man who doesn't need God. He's proud and said, I'm doing fine, thank you. A secular mindset. Well, what does Paul do for the jailer? If he doesn't teach and he... And he doesn't set him free. What does he do? In jail, he knows, I've got to sacrificially love the jailer. Hear me well. God did not set Paul free to set Paul free. It wasn't for Paul at all. And Paul knew it. In your life, when you're stuck, 
Do you know it? Is God setting you free for you or for someone else? And Paul stayed in jail. (laughs) And this proud man fell to his knees, trembling. What do I do to be saved? How many people have in their life a man like that, that they would love to see them fall on their knees and cry out, what must I do to be saved? How do we get to that point? I think, I think God is telling us in this passage, He's going to show us you're not stuck, you're sent to that person. The annoyance, the irritation, the in-the-way feeling, the situation that you have, I know you have them. That you feel stuck, you're not, you're sent. And there's something there God wants you to do so that other people can glorify God. Well, I mentioned that this was deeply impressing on Paul. Let me demonstrate that. You know, Paul Paul prayed a prayer every morning. I read from the book of prayer called the Sitter, the Jewish book of prayers. This famous prayer, you've probably heard it. Paul prayed it every morning before he was a Christian. This is, this is the words he said. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, woman, or a slave. Think in a Jewish male mindset. (laughs) God, I thank you I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And what did Paul find in Philippi? But a Gentile, a woman, and a slave. And do you know the book he wrote, the epistle he wrote right after his second missionary journey? It was Galatians. Galatians. And that very famous passage written on the front of your bulletin made a deep impression on Paul. He got it. It's at the bottom, Galatians 3.28, There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you all are one. You all are one in Christ. Makes a deep impression on Paul. I pray and I hope that in the areas where we feel stuck, that this text would make a deep impression on us. And that we would allow God to focus our minds where He wants us to go, to who He wants us to talk to. Now we're preparing for communion, the table. Many people said Christ was stuck. Stuck on a cross, dead, gone, but he rose again from the dead. He's not stuck. He was sent here for you. He was sent here for me. And there is no Jew or Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, for we all come as Christians to the communion table together to worship in the sacrament of communion. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would help us to know in our situation that we are thinking about right now what it means to be sent, what it means to be a missionary. I pray for kids, teenagers in this room who feel stuck in their families, parents who feel that way, wives who feel that way, People in jobs who feel that way. 
convey to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, what it means to be sent in those situations. For the glory of God, we pray.